It says, Now it happened as he went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with the spirit of divination met us who brought her masters much profit by fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. But when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And Father, we humbly ask that you just help us now by your Holy Spirit's ministry in this gathering this morning, that we'd have an ear to hear what your Spirit would say to this part of your church through this particular portion of your word. Lord, we don't want to hear wise or persuasive words of a man. We want to experience the demonstration of your Spirit and your power, speaking something personally and directly to our hearts. So bless your word and speak to us, we ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, let me guess, perhaps some of you this morning, hard week, maybe difficult month, maybe it's even been just a really challenging season in your life recently where you've been enduring a difficult season. Well, perhaps today's text is what God has for you. It's important for us to realize as followers of Jesus that when we follow the Lord's leading and serve his purposes and minister to people, that does not mean that life is going to be an absence of difficulties. In fact, Jesus himself promised in John chapter 16, in this world, this world, you will experience tribulation. And he just said, take heart. The good news is I overcome this world. And as you stay with Jesus, ultimately, you're going to overcome this world as well and enter into the eternal dimension of heaven's glory. But at times, as we follow the Lord in this journey, we may endure things like satanic opposition, mistreatment in our lives. We may go through times of personal suffering, and we have to learn how to properly handle such things so that we're not overcome by those things, but that we overcome through those things. And that's really what our text this morning is addressing. That's what we see happening in this section. Remember the background, Acts 16, as we told you last time, Paul's on his second missionary journey. And Acts 16 records really the the church plant in the city of Philippi. 
We see that Paul was answering a specific calling from the Lord to travel over to the area of Europe to preach the gospel in a region called Macedonia, and specifically in the city of Philippi, which was the foremost city in that area, where a church is planted in this chapter as the result of those things. And as Paul goes to the city of Philippi, he realizes there's no Jewish synagogue, which is where he typically would begin his ministry activity. But he discovered that a group of Jewish women, a few of them, used to meet each Sabbath day outside of the city by a river for a time of prayer, an act of worship to Yahweh God. And Paul, wanting to explain and offer the gospel of salvation through Jesus Christ, to these Jewish women being Jewish himself, wanting them to understand that God sent the Messiah, it was the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul goes out to that river where they met for a time of prayer and it says he sat down and casually spoke to them there about the Lord. Look at verse 14, it says, and as he spoke to the women out of the river, it says a certain woman named Lydia heard us. And she was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. And as we saw last time, the Lord opened Lydia's heart, it says, to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were then baptized and evidence of their commitment outwardly to follow Christ, she begged us saying, if you judge me faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And so she persuaded us. So Lydia, the first convert, in the church of Philippi that's planted, Lydia noticed this woman was a religious woman. It says that she went out and attended a prayer meeting. Every Sabbath, she entered into a time and participated in an occasion of prayer and worship, and she was a very religious woman, but yet, from God's standard, she was not yet in right relationship with the Lord. And again, a person can be a religious individual and yet not yet be still in right relationship with God. In fact, Jesus himself said there are going to be many, not some, many, who are going to say to him in the day when they stand before God, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and do religious works in your name? And Jesus is going to say, but I never knew you. Yes, you were religious, but you didn't have a real relationship with me through knowing me personally as Lord and Savior. And so Lydia is a woman who's obviously religious. She's got a good start. She has a foundation in the things of what it meant to know God in a way just kind of generically. But Paul wants her to understand that she needs to accept Jesus to receive eternal life and the forgiveness of her sins. So Paul, as he speaks to this woman beautifully, the text told us last time, the Lord opens her heart. And she sees and she understands. She heard what Paul was saying about Jesus. And the Lord, by a work of his grace, opens her up to be receptive. She believes upon and receives. She kind of hears it and finally gets it. Oh, I, I get it. I hear what you're saying about Jesus and that I need to know him and believe upon him and have a relationship with him as the Savior. And she and her family become the first followers of Christ in the city of Philippi. She then opens her home up with hospitality, offers further ministry opportunity for Paul to come teach them more about the ways of the Lord. And Lydia's home, we see in this chapter, becomes, it seems, the gathering place Early on, this informal gathering place for what becomes an established church plant, the church of Philippi. Well, as the Lord is working, Satan is now going to run some counterattack. 
some interference, direct opposition. That's why it goes on to tell us in verse 16, if you draw your attention there, now it happened, that is after these things, Luke says, recording here, this is Dr. Luke, again, who's with Paul as a, a medical missionary traveling with him. Luke says, as we went to prayer, that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us, who brought her masters much profit by fortune telling. And this girl followed Paul and us and cried out, saying, these men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation and this she did for many days. So Luke records here for us this repeated occurrence. It says it went on day after day. This repeated occurrence of really what was causing spiritual distraction each time the missionary team and the believers in the city of Philippi were coming together for a prayer meeting. Each time that would happen, Satan was sending out this demon-possessed slave girl to kind of create interference in their activities and their ministry notice first of all the devil's activity in that the poor victim or the pawn if you would of the devil is this poor slave girl who really you might say was a double slave and let me explain what i mean by that she was a slave both spiritually as well as it tells us she was also a slave circumstantially. First of all, she was a slave spiritually. Look what it says there in verse 16. It says this girl was possessed with a spirit of divination. The, the language there in the original, the Greek, literally is a spirit of python. And what it's referring to, the spirit of Python, Python was a mystical serpent-like dragon creature that was believed to be the guardian of the Oracle of Delphi, a, a form of pagan worship and idolatry among the Greeks in that day. And it says she was possessed with this spirit of Python. Now, that means she's indwelt or possessed spiritually with a demonic spirit. Now, to be possessed with an evil spirit means that she actually, her body was occupied with a demonic spirit that was controlling all of her faculties as a person from the inside. This spirit of divination controlled her like a slave from within, and it ruled over her life. It had control over her. It used her body to exercise supernatural evil activities, which included, notice we're told in verse 16 and 17, it included this, this activity of the spirit, divination and fortune telling, which are basically references to channeling spirits to seek knowledge for the future. Divination and fortune telling. Look, let us be discerning and aware to realize involving ourselves, which may seem like, oh, just, you know, casual fun with things like divination and fortune telling, those things do not come from healthy and safe sources. They come from satanic sources. They're nothing to be trifled with or fooled around with. And we need to remember that not only does God and all of the holy angels exist, but the Bible teaches very clearly as well, there is a whole host of fallen and rebellious evil spirits that exist as well in the spirit realm. 
the devil and all of the demons that operate under his direction and authority, if you would, in the scriptures, we see this literal reality here throughout the gospel accounts where people at times were literally possessed with a demonic spirit, with an unclean evil spirit occupying and ruling them from within. In Jesus' day, we see in the gospel accounts, they would literally bring demon-possessed people to the Lord so that Jesus could deliver them and release them from the control and the enslavement of these demonic spirits occupying them within. Demon spirits possessing people we see specifically in the Gospels and here in the book of Acts would always cause things like bizarre behaviors in people. At times you see record of demonic spirits causing debilitating symptoms in people mentally and physically. We read in the Bible times that demonic spirits would cause self-destructive tendencies and cause people to want to harm themselves and destroy themselves, as well as just honestly giving them supernatural powers to do things. And here we see the same with this girl who's enslaved by this unclean spirit, giving her powers of divination causing her to be exploited by these men who are using her for profit and her just behaving in bizarre and weird and annoying ways. And here we see this sad enslavement and may we always understand these spiritual realities, folks, to recognize that there can be times, there can indeed be times when issues and influences in somebody's life may stem from a spiritual source a spiritual source of some evil upon them or even a spiritual source that could be an unclean or demonic spirit actually ruling from within them, causing the manifestation of the issues that are taking place in their life. We have to be discerning and recognize such people do not need necessarily physical help or maybe even mental help. They need spiritual help. They need powerful intervention and deliverance from the Lord Jesus Christ who alone has the authority to help them. They need deliverance from what may be enslaving them spiritually or controlling and causing their issues supernaturally that are causing such unfortunate things in them. And I don't think, I don't think we should over-spiritualize everything and be quick to jump to conclusions. But by all means, let us not be naive spiritually and fail to recognize that sometimes the root of an issue could be spiritual in someone's life that's causing such a manifestation satanic activity and demons are real and we need to be aware and be on guard to such things so this gal was enslaved spiritually but she also sadly we read in our verses here she was also enslaved circumstantially Because you see what it says there in the text. It says that she was possessed with a spirit of divination. But it also says there in our verses that she was a slave to these masters who made much profit off of her by her fortune telling. Very, very sad to see. This girl, already enslaved spiritually, was also owned and controlled as a human slave to these evil men who were utilizing her and exploiting her like masters. They sold her capacities to provide services of fortune-telling and divination to enrich themselves monetarily. 
So we find human slavery here. She's being controlled by these masters who are forcing her to do things to make them money, utilizing her as a form of human slavery for another person's financial gain. And though this was done by evil and selfish men, absolutely, I want to say that to me, human slavery that uses people for financial profit is probably about one of the most diabolical, demonic, and devilish things that can still be done on this earth. In any capacity, the idea and justification to do such to people, to me, comes straight from the pit of hell, straight from the devil himself. For someone to enslave or exploit a child or a woman or a man in any form of human slavery to use them or to sell them in such a way for money, can someone could only do such things if they are completely deceived by the powers of darkness that somehow that is acceptable. That somehow that that is something that is justifiable. You know, Jesus said that Satan is not only a liar but a thief who comes to rob, to kill, and to destroy. And one of the greatest ways, even to this present day, the devil is doing that on this earth is through forms of human slavery in various different forms because human slavery totally robs a life. It robs a life of all of its dignity, all of its proper God-given worth and innocence and intended purposes to be able to live free. It kills what is good and wholesome inside of a human being. It just completely, it almost just murders a person slowly, internally, again and again as they're exploited to such horrific things. And it destroys a person physically and mentally and emotionally. And God help us as people who know and understand the truth, especially as believers. God help us to, to know such evil practices in whatever form they are happening are activities that are diabolical in their origin. And that we would stand against such things very strongly. And to what degree we might be able, through prayer or any practical effort, do whatever we can to seek to stop such things. To liberate those who are victims of such things, despite what personal cost it may bring into all of our lives. So we see here just you know the devil's activity enslaving this poor girl. Well, look what his agenda was as he was using her life. It tells us here when... The disturbance kept happening. Take notice with me here when this disturbance kept taking place. It says, verse 16, it happened when? As we went to prayer. As we went to prayer, Luke says, every time we went to prayer, that was when she met us and she followed us and she kept saying these statements again and again, day after day. <clears throat> and, and let me say, notice two things from that. First of all, just by way of generic observation, notice a major activity we see again, and I stress the word again, a major activity of the early church and early believers was holding and participating in prayer meetings. It says, as we went to prayer. The idea is, as we went to the prayer meeting, as we went to a place to pray. Again, we see all throughout the book of Acts. You see it in Acts chapter 1, they're praying in the upper room. Acts chapter 2, they're devoting themselves to prayer. Acts chapter 3, it tells us Peter and John are on their way to prayer. Acts chapter 4, they had some persecution. They met together for prayer. Again, all throughout the book of Acts, we see these continual references of the Holy Spirit giving us record of how believers met together, set aside times to gather together together in prayer. 
They were holding prayer meetings, set times when they would assemble to seek God and ask for God to work. And we find the believers actually attending those meetings and actually assembling and participating in the prayer gatherings when they would take place. And as we said before, the book of Acts is given to us by the Holy Spirit to set before us purposeful examples, to give us patterns as we see the church in its earliest and purest stages of really what every generation of the church should aspire to to implement, to model ourselves after. That is, churches, listen, churches should be holding prayer meetings. That's why we do that. That's why we have a prayer meeting before the morning service. That's why we have a prayer meeting before the Wednesday evening service. That's why we hold prayer meetings every other Sunday after the morning service and times when we'll set aside two, three, four days and have nights of prayer or days of prayer because that's what churches should be doing. Jesus said, my house should be called a house of prayer. He didn't say it should be called a house of Bible study or you know, uh, potlucks or you know, great concerts. It should be called a house of prayer, seeking God. So churches should be holding prayer meetings and believers, guess what, should actually make an effort to attend those times and to participate and engage and come together to pray. We say, I pray personally. Well, that's good and we should pray personally. Personal prayer is vital and very, very important. But the Bible is very clear as well that corporate times of unified prayer are just as important. Look, there's something very powerful, very unifying, very authoritative that happens when people come together in the name of Jesus, in faith, agreeing together in one accord and praying together in a meeting, assembling and seeking God, asking God to work, the value of participating in prayer. May the Lord help us to grow in this area. It's an area I think where all believers would do well for all of us to grow and to mature in that particular area of the value of corporate times of prayer participating in that. And look, even if as people we don't realize in the church the value and the benefit of prayer, I'll tell you who does. The devil. The devil knows. Because do you see when the devil's running interference? As we went to prayer, that's when the interference came. That's when the slave girl would come out and she would start kind of doing her thing. He says, as we went to prayer, it seems every time as they're headed towards the prayer meeting, Luke says, that's when this gal would come out and she'd start following us and she'd start saying these things and kind of just creating a stir and drawing people around and tying them up. Again, we'll talk more about what she's saying in a moment, but again, I don't want you to miss it was when it was time for prayer, that's when the, that seems that's when the devil would launch this gal out with the unclean spirit. That's when she would come out and she would begin to kind of create distraction and disrupt activity and do whatever she could to keep them from engaging in prayer. And let me just say, by way of application, if you so choose to decide to respond to the Holy Spirit and say, you know what, Lord, I need to pray more personally or, Lord, I'm actually going to, I'm going to attend a prayer meeting. I'm going to do that. I'm going to make a priority, start praying together with other believers, please anticipate spiritual opposition. As soon as you make that decision, something will try and distract you. The devil will find a way to disrupt you or to, you know, I mean, who hasn't done that before? I'm going to spend some time in prayer and you sit down to pray and as soon as you're down to pray, you go, is that picture crooked? Did I turn the lights off in my car? And and then all all of a sudden you're, look, and the devil is just going... I mean, the devil's not dumb. He understands the power 
of praying people. He understands the power of seeking God and believers in faith, asking God to intervene and to work and move in ways. And so the devil runs interference. Now, what's peculiar, you notice, but then to verse 17, this girl's possessed by what? An unclean demonic spirit. But notice what she's saying is actually accurate theologically, if you would. She says, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. Well, that was true. And to me, that's insightful there. The devil and his demons are able to direct people to say what is accurate theologically. Always remember that. The devil even knows scripture. He quoted it to Jesus. So the devil can work in ways where he can subtly gain credibility and connection if he wants to influence people by saying what is accurate to just kind of get people hooked and then gradually lead them off course afterwards. So it's very unique here. What she's saying is actually something in some ways that kind of, you know, it's accurate. And it seems this process went on, verse 18 says, day after day she kept doing this every time. these Again, these antics would start up again and her masters are trying to use her to capitalize on avenues of profit, but she's creating this confusion and distraction and making it look like maybe she's even with Paul and Silas and the missions team. So verse 18, kind of a very unique and classic verse, as she did this every day, it says, verse 18, look at it, but Paul greatly annoyed. Imagine that can happen by the Holy Spirit. Don't justify that too much. Be careful. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned to the Spirit and said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. So Paul, under the power of the Holy Spirit, deals with this demonic disturbance that's taking place here and he helps liberate this poor enslaved girl from the condition that she finds herself in, knowing she's being manipulated by an evil spirit, knowing she's being exploited by these evil men in human enslavement under the Holy Spirit's leading, Paul seeing all this going on day after day, it says there, verse 18, that he's greatly annoyed. The idea of the language there is there's a disturbance or an agitation in his spirit. The idea is this vexed Paul inwardly because he knew it was so unrighteous and so wrong and it was just the devil manipulating and exploiting a situation and just creating distraction and confusion and enslaving life. So Paul, relying on the authority of Jesus, commands this demon in the name of Jesus to depart and to come out of her and it actually takes place miraculously. Now again, in the gospel accounts, we see Jesus many a times using his authority as the son of God over the spiritual realms, just speaking a word and commanding a spirit that was demonic or unclean to leave a person. Jesus many a times miraculously set people free and Paul knew that Jesus had the power to do this. And again, keep in mind, biblically, the Bible says when a person is a believer in Jesus Christ, that Christ dwells in us. And so therefore, I believe Jesus wanting to help this woman and to deliver this woman, Paul knows what Jesus has the power to do, and he senses the Lord wants to liberate this girl, and he just acts in cooperation with the Lord, and relying upon the authority of Jesus, he commands this demonic spirit 
to come out of this gal and as a result of that a miraculous deliverance happens and she's liberated and freed spiritually by the power of Christ. The demon is exorcised from her. Now why was this exorcism of this demon important particularly in this situation well beyond just the compassion of liberating the poor girl that's certainly obvious but beyond that paul did not want anyone to think that somehow she was in connection with them what was she saying these men are the servants of the most high god they proclaim to us the way of salvation and one might begin to wrongly think that, oh, she's actually together, all the spiritual realms, just kind of a, you know, an amalgamation, they all just kind of work together, and so she's somehow working a connection, and Paul wanted to make very clear, no, 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 there's no partnership. What she is being led to do is of a demonic influence, and what we are doing is of the lordship of Jesus Christ, and Paul wanted to make that distinction very clear, and that's important, because one tactic of the devil at times, sometimes, is just to subtly kind of come in under the radar with the things of God. Look, the devil will gladly join churches. The devil will gladly get involved in the Lord's work if he can just kind of come under the radar and then just gradually kind of work his way in and pull people off into destruction. So Paul wanted to make a distinction, and this spirit is miraculously caused to come out of her in the very hour but look what happens verse 19 but when her master saw their hope of profit was gone they seized paul and silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities so as they realize their business profits have just been ruined now that the spirit of divination has been removed from her they are greatly angered by this because now she's of no value to them Now they can't exploit her and use her as a human slave anymore. And since they're motivated by the greed of gain, they are enraged at Paul for doing this. They become incensed and literally, it says verse 19 here, capture them by brutal force. And look what it says there. It says they literally drag them. I mean, they're not just... So they grab them and they just drag them down to the marketplace to where the authorities would be at. Verse 20 says, and then they brought them to the magistrates, those who were civil leaders, and said, these men being Jews exceedingly trouble our city. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. So they start to heap up now accusations and charges to get Paul and Silas in trouble with the civil authorities. They begin to say here, look, these men, they're troublemakers in our city. They're causing trouble by what they're doing. They're disrupting the peace of our city. Isn't it amazing what doing ministry for the Lord can get you accused of? Come into a city, start preaching the gospel, go into a community, start doing some ministry and compassion and helping people. and, and, And people say, they're disrupting the city. What are they doing? They're disrupting our city. And here they're being accused of causing disruption in the city by their ministry. And verse 21 tells us that they were saying they're teaching customs which are not lawful for Romans to receive or to observe. Again, Romans were taught to worship Caesar as Lord, Caesar as ruler. Well, Paul was saying, "Mm, I beg to differ, Jesus is Lord. Caesar should be respected. He should be honored, but only Jesus should be worshipped. And so they looked at this as these men were kind of causing an insurrection 
a rebellion against the Roman government. They're trying to get them to disregard the authority of Rome. And so they're making all these false accusations and charges. Verse 22 says, So then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. So if the accusations weren't enough, now they're subjected to what would be utterly humiliating as well as extremely painful. It tells us here in verse 22 two things, that they tore, ripped off their clothes. Now that means that they were basically being stripped in a way to publicly expose them and humiliate them, just to disgrace them in public humiliation. And also the tearing off of the clothes was to make sure that the beating they were about to endure was all the more painful because the clothes would cause padding. And they wanted them to feel the full brunt of the painful they were, the thing they were about to endure. And what does it say there, verse 22? It says, look at it. It says they were beaten with rods. Now, when the Jews at times dealt with criminals or civil offenders under the law would beat a violator of the law, the law for the Jews said that you could not go beyond 40 lashes. So they would always at worst stop at 39 to mingle mercy together with judgment, and they never wanted to go beyond that. The Romans, on the other hand, who are the ones orchestrating the beating here, they had no such rule. Numbers didn't matter. Abuse didn't matter. The Romans were masters of torture, masters of punishment. So the implication here, they're being beaten with rods by Roman soldiers and Roman government. This was intense torture. They would beat you, not 39 times, they would beat you until they felt like it was enough. Or they would continue to beat you until the crowd seemed like their bloodthirst was satisfied. So we need to understand, as it says they were beaten with rods here, this would be a severe and very long beating that would leave their bodies bruised and bloodied and battered, their flesh broken open. And you can imagine how excruciatingly painful that process is and what they were being subjected to, Paul and Silas, in this experience. Verse 23 says, When they had laid many stripes on them, they then, after that, threw them into prison, commanded the jailer to keep them securely, Having received such a charge, it says he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So after a severe beating, notice, they're now imprisoned like the most vile criminals in the society. It says there in our text that the jailer was instructed after the beating to make sure they were guarded securely. The idea is do not let these men escape, almost like they were just the most worst criminals in society. Do not make them escape, don't let them escape, keep them secure. And it says, therefore, notice, it says they were two things put into stocks, and it also says they were then put into the inner prison, verse 24 tells us. Now, to put them into stocks, again, stocks, you've probably seen those as those wooden frames, typically with holes for the limbs of the body, whether it be the head or the arms or the legs, the, the, the wooden frame would trap the different limbs, and the stocks were a device used not just to hold a prisoner secure, but stocks were actually used more for the purpose of torture, not just to hold somebody extra secure. 
They were set up in a way and utilized so the limbs of the prisoner would be inserted and locked into place so that they were in a stretched abnormal position, fixed in that position, unable to move or to do anything to adjust themselves so that the body would begin to endure muscle spasms and you weren't able to move or to adjust and it would just cause pain to radiate and cramping throughout the entire body all over. And here's what Paul and Silas, already being beaten severely, are now subjected to as they're put into the stocks. If that weren't enough, it says they were kept where? Verse 24, in the inner prison. That's a reference to the darkest, most unpleasant, and worst area of a prison. We might say kept in the dungeon. That's what an inner part of a prison in the Roman culture would be like. It'd be like a dungeon. Dark, damp conditions, cold, smelly, disgusting, filthy environment. And this is where these men are kept at in this condition and in the stocks. And again, what a shocking experience as the reward for walking with Jesus, serving the Lord, trying to help some people, doing that which is good and right. They're utterly misunderstood. They're horribly mistreated. And they're subjected to extremely painful experiences. And add on to that, They've done nothing wrong. They did nothing wrong. They only did what was right. It's interesting, Paul would later write to the Philippian church saying to them, Philippians 1.29, it's appointed for you and I as believers not only to believe upon Jesus, but also at times to suffer for his sake. That at times suffering can be a part of the appointment of following Jesus as we come to understand to a degree some of his sufferings as we endure some of our own. If you would, consider again what these men have experienced. They've been unfairly misjudged, unfairly arrested, falsely accused, stripped and publicly humiliated, beaten with rods by Roman soldiers, put into stocks, they're in an inner dungeon. Now look, those are not little inconveniences. That's not, oh, I got a flat tire on the way to work. Oh, persecution. The devil's getting me. Right? I mean, this is some heavy stuff. This is heavy, heavy difficulty, hardship, pain, major challenges in their life, hard experiences And here they are enduring pain and hard times and difficult circumstances. And look at verse 25. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. You know, I have their wow. I mean, you want to talk about an amazing, amazing response and example to follow? At a time when there was no circumstantial reason to pray, they prayed. At a time when there was no circumstantial motivation to sing and to worship God, they sung and they worshiped God. As the Spirit of God prompted their heart with a measure of grace, they turned their trial into an opportunity to trust and rely upon the Lord 
and to seek to be a testimony in this time of reliance upon God. In this difficult hour when it's hard, they're in severe pain personally in their life. They're dealing with something that's quite overwhelming. I'm sure hope seemed pretty dim in a completely pitch black, smelly, dark, filthy dungeon in stocks, bleeding and bruised physically, going through all they are mentally and emotionally at a time when everything seems like life's going horrible circumstantially, what would be the natural response? I mean, let's just be real. What would be the natural response of normal humanity? Well, let me just suggest a few things. One, in times like that, when people go through heavy, hard, difficult, painful things, sometimes they do what? They crumble under the personal hardship and they just fall apart emotionally or they just fall apart mentally, right? Let's be honest. Sometimes that's a natural response. They just crumble emotionally and mentally. Sometimes a natural human response is to grumble and to complain. I know never you. I'm just giving an example here. To grumble or to complain and to begin to have feelings of, you know, just almost being angry and bitter over what's happening in their life. To be upset with God to be upset with people who had subjected them to this. Or another, perhaps times like this, become great temptation to even fumble and fail morally. Where sometimes people, when they go through hardships, in this subtle way justify, they're just going to cast restraint to the wind and they're just going to go out and do whatever they want wrong because they're angry. And so they're going to act out in spite and they're just going to do wrong and, and things they know they shouldn't just because they want to release their frustrations. Yet rather than react naturally in hardship and suffering, these men respond supernaturally. Supernaturally. As the Spirit of the Lord prompts their heart to process in a supernatural way in severe pain and suffering and hard circumstances when it's hopeless and discouraging. Look at verse 25. It says at midnight, that dark hour, what do they do? They start to pray. They start to pray. They start to just talk to God about their life and what they're going through, just sharing honestly with God. They just start to talk through what's happening in their life Asking God for help and grace and God. I mean, can you imagine what that must have been like? There they are in that condition. And then they just start, Lord. Lord, we need your help right now. Lord, we never thought that this would be going on in our lives. And Lord, we don't have the first clue what to do in this situation. And Lord, it's hard. And, and Lord, we need your grace and strengthen us and help us. And Lord, we're hurting so bad. And just they begin to pour out their hearts to God. I have to wonder too, as they're in the midst of suffering, maybe their prayer then shifted and they started praying in sympathy for all the other suffering people around them. Lord, we pray for other people who are suffering like this. Lord, these other prisoners down here. Lord, help them too. Strengthen them. And you know, it's amazing how suffering gives us sympathy for others who are suffering. And maybe they just start interceding and praying in these beautiful ways. And then if that weren't enough, they start just singing to God in worship. It says they started to sing hymns. And what's singing to God in worship? Well, it's expressing thanks and praise to God, adoring God for who He is and what He does. 
and just beginning to express to God in a way that's celebratory, Lord, we're so grateful for who you are. And though life is like this, they just begin to sing and say, God, you're still good. Lord, thank you that eternity is something that we can have an anchor and a hope in, even though this life is hard. And they begin to just shift their focus from what's temporal to what's eternal through singing as an act of worship and just praising God through song at the most unlikely time to sing. But that's why the writer of Hebrews says we bring to God a sacrifice of praise that is the fruit of our lips giving thanks unto his name. Lord, help us not to just think, oh, well, we'll praise when we feel like praising. No, a sacrifice of praise. Sometimes we sing to the Lord with a tear running down our face as we're in the midst of singing or, or just worshiping the Lord when everything within us is dark and discouraging and hopeless, but yet we realize, yes, I feel like this and circumstances are like this, but Lord, the reality of who you are is still always worthy of my worship because you're still good. And God, there's an eternal hope beyond this world. And Paul and Silas show us here no unpleasant circumstance, no hard human experience, no struggles with thoughts and feelings were going to disrupt their relationship with God. They would not allow those things to disrupt their relationship with God. And what a beautiful example. They realize this is the most crucial, valuable time to draw close to God. This is when I need to pray, when I don't feel like praying. This is when I need to sing and express to God worship, when I can find no human reason to worship. Look, that's genuine faith, folks. That's faith in the midnight hour. When there's the darkness of the soul and yet the light of God within you says, look, depend upon the Lord. Be devoted to God still. Lift your heart and your voice to the Lord. Honor God irregardless of what's going on. I love what Job says. You know Job's story, all the difficulty. And Job makes that wonderful statement. Job says, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. And again, that's maturity. That's an act of faith. It doesn't come from the feelings, but some of the most wonderful times of prayer, some of those wonderful times of singing and worship, I know I can say, can come from some of the darkest, most difficult hours in our lives when we're struggling internally or things are difficult circumstantially. Hey, can I encourage you, put this into practice. In faith, put it into practice. Exercise the faith to process your hard times in this way through prayer and worship. It says as they were doing this, look at verse 25, all the prisoners were listening to them. You know, what are they, they turned this vile dungeon into a prison chapel service. And they just start praying and worshiping and the power of what these two men were experiencing no doubt impacted all those other prisoners around them who were listening to the reality of God. And the fact that, wow, this is, this is, we've never, this is unreal. Their God must be real. This must be genuine. No way a human being would do this. And let me say this morning, sometimes the difficulties we endure can become the doorways of spiritual opportunity in our lives to help other people who are struggling on this earth. 
to let them see the reality of God and, and, and His purposes and what He can do. Can I say this morning to you, don't let hardships ruin you. Redeem the time. Redeem those situations. Use them situations redemptively for God's greater purposes and in faith, despite what thoughts or feelings or circumstances are saying, just start to pray and start to worship and let that be the way in faith you process it. Let that be the way that you process it. Choose in faith to do that. Why not put this into practice right